It's Tuesday, May 25th, 2010. And hey, you've got Oz in your ears. I'm John McCain, and I approve this message. Drug and human smuggling, home invasions, murder. We're outmanned. Of all the illegals in America, more than half come through Arizona. Have we got the right plan? Plan's perfect. You bring troops, state, county, and local law enforcement together. And complete the dang fence. It'll work this time. Senator, you're one of us. Complete the dang fence. You're one of us. Complete the dang fence. You're one of us. Complete the dang fence. Yo, Oz is, and our guest this morning, or afternoon or evening, because it's all a time shift, isn't it? Sheriff Luther Axhandle with the Sheriff's Report. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Bretman. I'm certainly happy to be here. As you uh, remember from my last Sheriff's Report, there was every indication that aliens uh, were everywhere, and the Sheriff's Department had them well under control, but that doesn't keep these aliens down. I mean the ones from outer space, not the ones from uh, your Latin American countries. Now, here, for example, on Monday, May 3rd, uh, at 3.07 a.m., uh, a man said his neighbor and his neighbor's girlfriend were seen peeking through his window 15 minutes earlier, and the neighbor had a flashlight. And the caller also said he thought the neighbor removed the screen from his window. That could be an alien. I, I easily, just want to point e- easy. Somebody who came through where they hadn't finished that dang fence. There you go. And all that happened for the rest of the day and night was some trees kept falling down. They said a tree fell on a car in Crawford Road. Uh, there was a, 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 a small tree blocking Highway 525. Then there was a traffic light out. I mean, it was just a terrible trouble all there on uh, May 3rd. But then on May 4th, at uh, 12.22 a.m., a man on Fish Road reported the, th- the theft of a chain and cross and a coin with a serenity prayer on it. Oh, that's, that's now, alien, uh, the a vandalism. First thing an alien would take would be a, 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 a serenity prayer, don't you think? Well, sir? the first thing an alien would do to pixelate would be to drop trees on Crawford. I mean, I heard that and I went, that's, yeah, that's it. it. They, Outer space. Yeah, well, okay. And then here's the last item on my report for today. It was later on that same uh, May 4th day at uh, 11.45 p.m. <sighs> hate to get into this one, but you'll see what I mean. A suspicious man or something, was seen going through mailboxes near Wintergreen Drive and Deer Lake Road. He was in his 30s with a long ponytail, uh, uh, glasses, and a long green trench coat. Now, now, what does that tell you, Mr. Bretman? That says Venus to me. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it for the uh, that's it for the sheriff's report for this time. I'm always pleased to to let the folks know that uh, when they're looking for aliens, they just got to come to to South Whidbey Island, and and we'll take care of them. Okay, so long. This hasn't been a good few weeks for Tony Hayward, the chief executive officer of BP, or as we call it, that bastard petroleum. For CEOs in crisis, the playbook includes a proper appreciation of the gravity of the situation, a sense of calm urgency and confidence-building rhetoric backed by confidence-building action. So far, Hayward is zero for three. From the outset, there's been a sense that Hayward wasn't quite prepared for this and didn't quite grasp what is at stake. The Wall Street Journal reported that Hayward admitted that the oil giant had not the technology available to stop the leak. He also said in hindsight it was probably true that BP should have done more to prepare for such an emergency. Yeah, like not faking the statistics on the blowout preventer to begin with, not lobbying all those slimy sluts in Washington so that they didn't have to be properly regulated. Yeah, they could have done this and that. As the spill worsened, Hayward fretted that he and uh, BP <laughs> were its victims. Ah, he's the victim, not us, not the fish, the sea turtles, the, uh, all the people in, in the Gulf area, all the people in the world, all the shrimp, oh, if only the shrimp could vote. 
So he said, what the hell have we done to deserve this, he reportedly told fellow executives. Of course, Hayward isn't the victim here. The sea life, as I said, the sea itself, the employees who died, the fishermen who are losing their livelihoods, the tourism industry, responsible drillers, they're the victims. Hayward should have been asking himself, what the hell did they do to deserve this? And what am I going to do to fix it? The private grumbling has been matched by public bumbling. Hayward has used unfortunate metaphors. Quote, we will only win this if we can win the hearts and minds of the local community, he said. Apparently unaware that hearts and minds is a phrase forever identified with the debacle of the Vietnam War. At least he didn't talk about his efforts in the Gulf as being shock and awe-like. But he will probably. Give him the time. And in a moment of exquisitely bad taste, Hayward said, Apollo 13 did not stop the space program. The Air France airplane that uh, fell out of the sky off of Brazil did not stop the aviation industry. Well, among the many crucial differences between Apollo 13 and this oil spill, Apollo 13 turned out to be a feel-good triumph of engineering since the astronauts came home alive. The BP spill is simply an epic fail. At other times, Hayward sounds like a Monty Python character with understatement that would be comic if it weren't so tragic. Here's how he recently explained BP's response. Quote, it was a bit bumpy to get it going, but we and we made, you know, a few little mistakes early on. I won't even comment on that. As the Financial Times article noted, Hayward was proud of the containment effort. Almost nothing has escaped, Hayward said, although we now find out it's 100,000 gallons a day. And here's the best part from The Guardian in London. The Gulf of Mexico is a very big ocean. The amount of volume of oil and dispersant we are putting into it is tiny in relationship to the total water volume. Yes, it's just a flesh wound. Unfortunately for BP, the irregular flow of data is undermining Hayward's cause. The New York Times reported that scientists are finding enormous oil plumes in the deep waters of the Gulf of Mexico, including one as large as 10 miles long, 3 miles wide, and 300 feet thick in spots. The discovery is fresh evidence that the leak from the broken undersea well could be substantially worse than estimates that the government and BP have given. You can bet your butt that they're bigger than the estimates given by BP and the government. Oh, that, that's a lock. That's odds on. But, the Times noted, BP has resisted entreaties from scientists that they be allowed to use sophisticated instruments at the ocean floor that would give a far more accurate picture of how much oil is really gushing from the well. Meanwhile, in an interview with the BBC, Hayward was saying, it's not possible to measure the flow from the leak. Well, for some companies, a crisis can turn out to be an opportunity. If BP had managed to shut down the leak immediately, it would have gone a long way toward limiting its reputational and financial damage. But as it drags on, the spill reinforces the popular notion that BP has a poor safety record in North America. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And all the while, its CEO comes off as glib, wishful, self-involved, and foolish. And yet, he has still got a job. Well, Pete, the, uh, the new TV season keeps previewing itself, at least it does in the pages of the New York Times. I don't watch television, but I'm certainly interested in what's on it. And uh, I'm very excited, as I know you will be, about the, the, new, uh, well, the new emphasis on economics. Oh, good. Now, I don't mean on the part of the, of the networks. The emphasis is always on economics. But in the programs themselves, for example, ABC, uh, you'll remember, owned by the Walt Disney Company, announced that it would schedule three shows, not just one, but three, that take economic conditions into account. Uh, my favorite is a revival of a show called Secret Millionaire, which uh, Fox ran for a while, six episodes, and, and back in the died. late 2000s, it died. There's a reality series uh, based on a British hit. Naturally, we can't come up with anything except the Brit shows. And this asks... Wealthy executives and entrepreneurs to live incognito in poor communities and give away cash to worthy residents. That is sickening. <laughs> is that the most disgusting idea for a television show you have ever heard in your life? It's, it's, I love, you know, it's the one that said, 
Ryan Seacrest will pay your rent. One of yeah. those billboards. I'm waiting for yeah. What? All you have to do is 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 walk around the streets upside down in a duck suit and be recognized by Ryan Seacrest's simulcrum, and you've got your rent paid. Well, it's, that's only one of the shows. Now, there's one called. There's all on on Disney, right? Off the map. And that's an hour long medical drama. Yeah. Uh, that uh, they're going to introduce in the mid season. It's about idealistic doctors who leave the United States, <laughs> you got a connection already there, to work at a clinic in South America, where there's a lot more coke, I think, down there. And their third one is... And no unions. And no unions. So it's much easier to no shoot unions. the show. Yeah, yeah, right. And there's a new police <laughs> drama called Detroit 187. I, I think think that's what you dial instead of help, I think, in Detroit. To do, what, what's that number again, honey? I don't know, 853? 187, I hit that number okay. just recently. Yeah, let's dial, let's dial that number. Well, uh, so they got these, uh, they got a homicide unit in the city that has the worst homicide record in the United States, right? These guys are, it's, it's called the overworked cop show, right? So that's what's happening to help with the economics. So I want to make this clear. We've got millionaires who are going into slums and giving people rent money. Yeah, yeah. And we got that followed by doctors who are le- idealistic ones yeah. who are leaving the states. Doctors without borders. <laughs> doctors, I mean, without, without any doctors sense of without self. conscience. Yeah. Doc- and, then, uh, and, then, and then we got, uh, then we got Detroit. So yeah. we can all go to some pathetic little American town. And you know what's going to happen there right. in this in this bedeviled city where, you know, where the slum. unemployment is 27% amongst African Americans. What's going to happen there, David? ABC is going to take their cameras in and there are going to be a lot of people making lunches for the actors. Okay. Just look out what you ask for. Case in point. The Republicans have their work cut out for them now that Rand Paul has won the GOP nomination to replace the retiring Senator Jim Bunning of Kentucky. And Republican leaders are already getting on board. But it's an odd train they are boarding. Republicans are preparing to embrace Paul as the man in the fall. But what are they in for? Paul is no establishment Republican, and bringing him into the fold could make for some uncomfortable joint campaign appearances as they defend his desire to abolish both the Federal Reserve, the Department of Education, and the Department of Energy. Yeah, that's a tough trifecta. You're up there with Rand Paul. He says, get rid of the Federal Reserve. Well, there's lots of people that feel that way. There are Democrats on the other side of the aisle that would love to get rid of the Federal Reserve and put in a national bank or something like it. Get rid of the Department of Education. What? Well, you want to turn it into what? The Department of Homeschooling? And then get rid of the Department of Energy. Why? Because you're sucking up so much oil, there isn't going to be any energy left. Anyway. Paul has been critical of the Patriot Act. I join him on that. He suggested parts of it are unconstitutional. You go, boy. And has said he would have voted against the Iraq War. Hey, hey, I'm beginning to like this lad. And maintains that drug legalization, really, is an argument best left up to the states. Well, in this case, he is showing his pure libertarian side. Of course, his dad is the is the banner carrier for the libertarians. The problem is, is that the libertarians kind of get... Out of touch, there's a kind of naive, almost utopian thread that runs through all of the libertarian rhetoric because a lot of it is just bloody impossible. Okay, but here's what Paul said about winning. The larger the victory, the more the mandate for the Tea Party. He didn't say the Republican Party. He said the Tea Party, and he told that to the Associated Press. He just didn't whisper it to someone at his victory party at his country club. Yeah, well, he defended being at the country club because he said anybody of any race can play golf now. Hey, look at Tiger Woods, okay? So Paul is a teabagger for sure. He fits in right with the nutcases who took over the main Republican Party and passed a platform that's that what? Here it goes. Abolishes the Federal Reserve. Hey, Rand, right with you. Calls global warming a myth, seals the border, and fights efforts to create a one-world government. If Rand is such a teabagger, maybe he ought to take on Glenn Beck as an advisor. After all, Beck is second in popularity only to Sarah Palin among the baggers. And, hey, he knows that President Obama and friends, this is a quote, are creating a global governance structure full of global standards and global bank taxes. Glenn knows that social and ecological justice and all this bullcrap is just what it is. Bullcrap. 
And he says, Jesus doesn't want cap and trade. So this is the kind of, of nuthouse rhetoric that's coming out of the teabaggers and the people that, in a sense, speak for him. Rand Paul is not an embarrassment. He's an oddity. He's off the tracks. He's not traditional GOP. It's possible that the GOP is indeed moving into the Tea Party as part of their self-destruct. Because, as I've said before, they are disappearing in front of our eyes. And what happened in the key uh, election in Pennsylvania's 12th uh, last week is perfect proof. Last Tuesday, the most important election wasn't a primary race, but rather the congressional special election in Pennsylvania's 12th, a contest to fill the vacancy left by the late Democratic representative, Jack Murtha. Remember, Jack Murtha was the conservative Democrat who opposed the Iraq war. Okay. Observers in both parties considered the race something of a bellwether. Democrats ran Mark Critz, a former Murtha staffer, against businessman Tim Burns, who touted his outsider status and association with the right-wing Tea Party movement as his badge of honor. So, okay, we've got a standard Democrat, right? A staffer for the for Murtha against a teabagger. And this was supposed to be a no-brainer for the Republican Party. It was the race Republicans felt they had to win. And the RNC boasted repeatedly that a victory in Pennsylvania's 12th would foretell significant gains in the midterms. It didn't turn out that way. Hmm. No, it didn't. Didn't turn out the way they hoped. The special election in southwestern Pennsylvania suggested the Democrats were able to score victories in this challenging political environment. Critz defeated Burns by a whopping eight points, 53 to 45. Though Democrats dominate in the district, its voters are blue-collar conservatives, and it is exactly the type of swing district carried by Senator John McCain in the 2008 presidential race that Republicans must win if they are to reach their goal of taking control of the House in November. The loss dealt a blow to Republicans who have been raising expectations for the fall. This is a district, by the way, if you take a look at this district, is, it is the most odd piece of gerrymandering. It, looked like, it looks like a Mandel brought uh, a figure out of uh, chaos theory. It's just, it's, it's, it's absurd. But McCain took it in 2008, you'd think. Well, didn't work. If you can't win a seat that is trending Republican in a year like this, then where is the wave, asked Tom Davis, a former Republican congressman from Virginia, who said Republicans will need to examine what went wrong. This, this is the only district in the country that backed Kerry in 2004, but McCain in 2008, suggesting it was trending heavily in the GOP's direction. If there's going to be a backlash against Dems right now, this should be the place to find it. Indeed, it was the bulk of Burns' platform. He specifically ran against Washington, Speaker Pelosi, and the Obama presidency, a pitch Republicans intend to duplicate in other competitive districts through the fall. Columnist Mark Ambinder noted that if Republicans don't win, I think us pundits in Washington are going to have to revise our thinking about whether this is a wave election year for the Republicans. Maybe it is a wave year. Maybe it's waving goodbye to that majority that they will never attain. The GOP failed spectacularly, losing on a level playing field where, in this favorable environment, they should have run roughshod over the opposition. The district itself couldn't have been more prime for a Republican victory. Well, according to one recent poll, President Barack Obama's approval rating in the 12th was a dismal 35%, compared to 55% who disapproved. His health care plan was equally unpopular. Just 30% of those polls supported it, while 58% were in opposition. And last week, perennial whiz kid Newt Gingrich said, This year we have mobilized millions of people from all over the country, and they are ready to take back this country. It's going to start right here, right now, in Pennsylvania's 12th. Wrong, Newt. They gave you the boot because you ran another empty suit. And for those keeping score, there have been several special elections for U.S. House seats since the president's inauguration 16 months ago. New York 20, Illinois 5, California 32, California 10, New York 23, Florida 19, and Pennsylvania 12. Democrats have won all seven. Here's an odd tidbit from Talking Points Memo. Uh, 
as BP's high-priced industry experts flail, and they are flailing. They don't know what to do about this oil slick. Well, they're, Whatever like they they're covered with oil, and what are they going to do? They, they're not clean. They don't go down there and get those nice ladies to clean up their, their wings. And, no, no, and they, they try to put domes on it. They try to suck it. They try to disperse it. They try to rake it. They don't know what. So the president yeah. has turned to a ragtag band of big think scientific renegades and sent them on a mission down there to find out what to do before it's too late. Here's a rundown of the president's gang of five. Okay. The old hand, Richard Garvin. In 1951, 23-year-old Richard Garvin was working at the Los Alamos Nuclear Laboratory when he was asked by Edward Tella to devise an experiment that would demonstrate the principle of radiation implosion. Garvin's detailed sketch served as the basis for Mike, an 80-ton device that was detonated the following year as the world's first hydrogen bomb. Uh, somehow I knew you were leading up to the old so what, H-bomb. So one of the guys they're sending down there, right, okay. is, is the old father of the, of the hydrogen bomb. I, so there's that. you can imagine what he wants to do. Okay, uh, I got it, I got no it. No more oil slick, no more Gulf of Mexico. There you go. Then there's the establishment man, Tom Hunter. Okay. Hunter announced his resignation recently as president of the Sandia, or Sandia, I believe, National Laboratories, mm-hmm. an outpost of the U.S. nuclear weapons complex that conducts high-level research for the National Nuclear Security Administration. So you got two nukies down this there. This is nuki right. number two. Nuki number two. Okay. You're winning. Hmm. Okay. okay. The third, the maverick genius. Alexander Slocum. But maybe he'll take a, a page out of uh, McCain's book and say, no, I'm not a maverick genius anymore. I never was. I'm just a genius. Okay. Slocum, a professor of mechanical engineering at MIT, teaches a world-famous design and manufacturing class that culminates in a remote-controlled robot competition. A, co- a colleague says, Slocum has a lot of creative creative ideas. One in ten are really brilliant, but nine are dumb. You just can't miss that one that's brilliant. So I hope they don't because they might come back with nine dumb ideas. From okay, we got two nukies and a and, and a, a robot and a robot man. And okay. A robot play, you know, player. Robot okay. idea man. Okay, the no nonsense engineer. Let's Uh-oh. get down here. Tick, tick, tick. George Cooper. He's got a perfect no nonsense name. George Cooper. Mm-hmm. Cooper's a professor of engineering at UC Berkeley. He spent much of his career in industrial research with Britain's National Physical Laboratory, and now serves as senior petroleum engineer at the uh, Department of Energy's Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory. Of course. Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory does an yeah. awful lot of nukes. Another nukes, yeah. Yeah, right. In fact, it does a lot. And what it doesn't do there, it does out at Livermore, which it runs. He once worked with the National Aeronautics and Space Administration to adapt mining techniques for use on Mars. Okay, two nukies, right? Two nukies, a robot guy, and somebody who wants to work on Mars. Uh, yeah, well, as a mining, as a mine, we just want to go to Mars and look at the view. Wait a minute. Nuclear. Read a little Ray Bradbury up there, you know? No, yeah. he wants to go and mine the planet? Wait a minute. Nuclear-powered mining robots. Okay, uh, but the last. That, I got the picture. This is the what-am-I-doing-here guy, Jonathan <laughs> Katz. Katz, a professor of Washington University in St. Louis, focuses on astrophysics. Upon his return from a quick trip to the Gulf region with the boys, he didn't seem confident that he was much help with the mission. So we can pick up again, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll just start with this guy. No, we're okay through mission, right? Okay, here we go. Asked if he was willing to go back, Kat said, well, uh, I'd, I'd be happy to, but somebody's got to send me an email or a phone call. Well, Dave, he may not be getting that call now that he's been revealed as a virulent homophobe and climate change denialist. It's one thing to question global warming. It's cool. You know, I don't know. But it's another to claim that the human body, quote from him, was not designed to engage in homosexual acts. Engaging in such behavior is like riding a motorcycle on an icy road without a helmet. It may be possible to get away with it for a while, and a few misguided souls may get a thrill out of doing so. But sooner or later, referring here to the the spread of AIDS, the consequences will be catastrophic. Now, I wonder who who vetted this nutcase for the gang of five. Uh, no, no, wait, wait a minute. Okay, so we got two nukies. We got the robot guy. Got Mr. Mars. Uh, 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 Mr. Mars. Uh, and we've Mr. got Dane the homophobic astroph- uh, astrophysicist. I don't like the word astrophysicist when you... Homophobic astrophysicist? Yeah, I mean, he's... Yeah, somehow this... Hmm, he's I, he's yeah. looking at the wrong end of the universe. Was a farmer 
Minnesota wheat He rode there with his daughter High up on the thresher's seat They broke down on the hillside The radiator spitting steam Went back to get the toolbox So they could fix the old machine With a turn of the wrench And a twist of the screw We can fix the tractor We can make it like new But that day they got a letter They said the power lines would come Right across their farmland Right across the setting sun So they gathered all the family And talked late into the night We cannot let them do this We've got to put up one hell of a fight Near the turn of the wrench And a twist of the screw We'll apply a little pressure And we'll see what that will do So they phoned a hundred farmers And drove to the Twin Cities Met there with the governor And they sued the utility But after writing all the letters And paying all the legal costs To the power of the city Once again the farmers lost And in the still of the evening The wind is all you hear I watch the waves on the wheat fields alone I walk the furrows of earth I plant year after year This is our land, this is our home This is our land, this is our home So they met there at the tavern But there wasn't much to say The power lines may come But they will Not stay with the turn of the wrench and a twist of the screw. What was once put together, we can easily undo with bandanas on their faces, careful not to make a sound. They loosened all the bolts. That held the towers to the ground And several weeks later With nobody around The Minnesota wind Blew tower after tower after tower Down with a turn of the wrench And a twist of the screw What was once put together
From his outpost in the Kandahar province of Afghanistan, Private Patrick S. Fitzgibbon complained to his father about shortages of cigarettes, Skittles, and Mountain Dew. This guy is just a kid, okay? But he took pride in his work and volunteered for patrols. On August 1st, 2009, while on one of those missions, Private Fitzgibbon stepped on a metal plate wired to a bomb buried in the sun-baked earth. The blue sky turned brown with dust. The explosion instantly killed Fitzgibbon and Corporal Jonathan M. Walls, a 27-year-old father from Colorado Springs. An hour later, a third soldier who was helping secure the area, PFC Richard Jones, died from another hidden bomb. The two blasts wounded at least 10 other soldiers. Add the suicide bomb in Kabul that killed at least five United States service members last week, and the toll of American dead in Afghanistan has passed the 1,000 mark. Oh my, oh my. I never thought I'd live to see it. Yeah, I saw these, these terrible um, you know, uh, milestones being reached in Iraq, the phony criminal war, but I thought somehow we had a way of getting out of Afghanistan before we saw a thousand dead. Of course, this doesn't include all the maimed and wounded and all of the Afghans who have been killed, not just by us, but by those beasts who call themselves Taliban. Yeah, people of the book. The book has got a bomb in it. Having taken, having taken nearly seven years to reach the first 500 dead, the war killed the second 500 in fewer than two. A resurgent Taliban active uh, in almost every province, a weak central government incapable of protecting its people, and a larger number of American troops in harm's way all contributed to this accelerating pace of death. In the last two years, the number of troops killed by homemade bombs, which the military calls improvised explosive devices, or IEDs, increased significantly. In 2008, for the first time, more than half of American combat deaths were the result of IEDs, which, just as they did in Iraq, have become both more powerful right, and more plentiful in Afghanistan. The IEDs are capable of flipping or tearing holes into heavily armored vehicles that had once seemed impervious. A bomb estimated at 2,000 pounds killed seven American soldiers and the interpreter during a ride in a troop carrier last fall. Quote, if the Taliban has obtained political control over important parts of the country, the only way it will get better is if we introduce military forces and contest their control, said Stephen Biddle, a defense policy expert at the Council on Foreign Relations, who was part of a group that reviewed American strategy last summer. And that's going to get people killed, their people, our people, and civilians. Yeah, but one of the civilians that isn't going to be killed is Stephen Biddle, who's sitting there with a martini and a big, long Cuban cigar at the Council on Foreign Relations telling us we got to send more boys like Patrick Fitzgibbons in there to get blown up. we got to get out of Afghanistan. I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again. It's madness. It's been madness for time immemorial. We have no reason to be there. If it's Pakistan that's a problem, then let's get involved with Pakistan. The thought makes me shudder. Maybe we don't belong there. We certainly don't belong there in our present state. Well, Pete, we should slug this one. Farm Waste Data Center Ecosystem. Huh? Huh? Yeah, exactly. Well, with the right skills, I read here, a dairy farmer could rent out land and power to technology companies and recoup an investment in the waste-to-fuel systems within two years. This is from Hewlett-Packard Engineers in a research paper, okay? Yeah. Now, <clears throat> they don't the, have anything better to do with no, their time. No, no. Okay, well, okay. Uh, information technology and manure have a symbiotic relationship, said Chandrakant Patel, the director of HP's. No, wait, so, wait a minute. So, you, so, yes, what, sorry. You said that the waste and information no, I technology. I didn't say that, Pete. I would never have Patel said, said that. that. Patel said but that. But you say information technology, technology is IT, and IT. all you have to do is add the shh. I, yeah, okay. There you go. There you See, go. why do they have a symbiotic relationship? <laughs> they they fit inside Each one another. Other, How yes. smart of you to notice that. Yeah. Okay, and he goes on having these data centers in, uh, in, in, in tiny places where they, have, where they have these cows will give farmers a great new opportunity. Now, now I've got some figures here for you. Please. Without figures, uh, this is a meaningless joke. Okay. The average cow makes enough waste per day to power a 100-watt light, light bulb. <laughs> In order to find the cow. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. the barn is dark. Oh, oh, oh okay. wow, a light. Oh, okay, okay. According to HP's calculations, 
it would take 10,000 cows <laughs> to fuel a one megawatt data center, which would run maybe your bank's computing center, the one that figures out how, how much interest you've made, like 32 cents during the preceding month. Okay? Banks down, sir. Cows aren't pooping like they used to. But Ooh. here's the thing. We've got we to go now to this clip from CNN No Evil News for the real factoids. According to a recent story in the New York Times, this country's cattle, hog, and chicken feedlots produce some 291 billion pounds of manure each and every day. To help us understand the immensity of this figure, we've invited Dr. Albert Calculus of the Princeton Institute for Obscure Concepts to join us. Doctor. Yeah, it's uh, indivisible to be here. Yes. Um, Exactly how much is 291 billion pounds, Dr. Calculus? Well, let me see. That would be 145 million and a half tons of the... Uh, mm, uh, refuse. Yeah, refuse yes. uh, per every day. And by the year, let me figure, over 53 million tons of... Uh, uh, manure? Manure, yeah, yes. yeah. By comparison, the pyramid of the Pharaoh Cheops weighs about 690 million tons, mm. which means that every four and three-quarter days, you've got a pile of this... Uh, uh, excrement. Yeah, piles of eight of the pyramid, but uh, not so well defined. Uh, that would make in a year you've got about 77 pyramids of... Um, mm, dung? Dung, each about 500 feet tall, for a total heap of... Uh, of uh, fecal matter. 37 thousand feet, mm. or about seven-mile-high pile of uh, the stuff. stuff. Huh? So <laughs> what do they do with this, may I ask? Well, Doctor, they keep it in what they call manure lagoons. Oh, lagoons, mm. very tropical. Much better than piling it up into pyramids. Oh, yes. The stuff must be pretty uh, sloppy, huh? Well, you know, they do say it's leaking out all over the place. Smelly, too. Hmm? But that's the price we pay for the meat we eat. Yeah, well, I think I go get me a veggie burger. Mm. Ecologically speaking, that's a good choice. And thank you, Doctor. Dr. Calculus. No problem. That's what you think. From someone who loves you very much, busboy, if only I knew your name, I would call you by it. But all I know to call you is busboy. I am the girl with dark blonde hair that was sitting by the guy with a beard and black hat. And we were sitting at that round table. I need to see you. From the first glance of you, your hair caught my eye. I think you really look handsome. But when we looked at each other, or when I looked at you, I felt love inside for you and couldn't get you out of my mind. I need you to come get me. But you don't know where I live, and I don't know where you live. But I am paying the woman that gave this to you $5 to give this to you and to bring your note back to me. Or you can follow her to Dollar General, where she works, and I'll meet you there. Please don't disappoint me. I love you, and I want to trust you and have faith in you. I'll meet you at 7.30 p.m. Saturday. Maybe it will be better for you to send a note back so I will go out on Saturday at 7.30 and you not be there and then get caught. I will tell you my name when I see you. Love you. P.S. Until I know your name, can I call you Tony? And can you call me, for the time being, Monique? <laughs> Busboy, follow us. I would call you by your name, but I don't know it. But follow secretly. Tonight, I will sneak out and come with you. Will you? Please do. We are driving in a bus. Please don't be caught and make it obvious. I love you and want to be your girlfriend. Thanks, Desiree. I see a crawling king snake Not your average snake in the grass See a slithering copperhead She wipes out the tracks 
She got a short fuse this morning She's raising up her back I see her more in the tall grass Working her way on down Oh, you better watch your step, boy Or she'll be cutting you down, yeah President of the European Central Bank is quoted as saying that he still sees Europe's economy in its deepest crisis since World War II or even World War I. Wait a minute. Weimar Germany after World War I when you had to take wheelbarrows full of marks to the grocery store to get a loaf of bread? It's that bad? Well, maybe it is. I haven't been to Europe lately, and who knows if I'm getting the right reports. All right, the German newsweekly Der Spiegel reported that Jean-Claude Crichet, that's the president of the European Central Bank, in case you didn't have that on the tip of your tongue, said that since the beginning of the financial crisis in 2008, quote, we have experienced and we are experiencing really dramatic times. Yeah, don't say. In a recent interview, Trichet linked the recent exacerbation of the Eurozone's debt crisis to to the 2008 collapse of the U.S. investment bank Lehman Brothers, saying, the markets didn't work anymore. The markets don't work anymore? What about all those market economists? What about all those economic departments in the University of Chicago and other fine institutions based on market economics? Hey, guys, I'm waving a flag. It appears, according to the president of the European Central Bank, it don't work no more. Trichet was further quoted as saying that there was no doubt the economy is in its most difficult situation since World War II, or perhaps even since World War One. Well, that's repeat. That repeats the topic sentence, but it's good to say it again. Let's say let's say it's not in its worst shape since World War One. Let's say it's not Weimar Germany. Let's just say it's in its worst shape since World War Two. Well, 
We left Europe, or should I say, Hitler and his legions and the Russians left Europe in a shambles. The economies were ruined. Is it that bad? Well, it's healthier on the outside. You know, it's a Potemkin economy. It kind of looks okay. There's pictures of all those Frenchmen looking kind of stylish, drinking better wine than we are, and the, and the Spaniards, you know, eating tapas and having a wonderful time, and the Greeks living a Mediterranean lifestyle, and the Germans working real hard and getting their mail on time. All those good things. But the fact is, is that unemployment in Spain is 20% because of the bogus housing market. Portugal's on the rails. So is Greece. They're worried about Italy. They're worried about Spain. What's next? The fact is, is that the euro is in deep trouble. The euro opened at 80 cents to the dollar when it came on. I don't remember exactly the date, but it was like almost 20 years ago. And it went up to as high as, I think like a buck 60. It's like a buck 25 now and falling. As the euro falls, it, it, puts tremendous pressure on these economies and also tremendous pressure on all the people with euro-backed investments like state bonds, much of which is owned by the United States, the country to which I salute economically. It's a world market crisis. It's just not the euro. Of course, America has 46% of its unemployed unemployed for more than 50 weeks. A whole parts of Southeast China, where they made all those fine goods for three cents an hour, is collapsing because its largest customer, us, just ain't buying. Japan just threw what? $20 billion into the economy to keep things moving. The Germans threw a trillion dollars in to keep the euro from falling, and it's still taking a downhill ride. Now, I'm not a doomsayer. Uh, I get no joy out of other people's economic problems. I have plenty myself. No schadenfreude here. In fact, I'm not into Freud at all. But the fact is, is that if we're going to do anything about what's going down, if we're going to make things better, we have to take a realistic look at the nature of the markets and the nature, uh, nature of our economy. They're not doing it very well in Washington. Well, one reason is that they're completely cut off from the reality. I mean, there's this wonderful story that Senator Ben Nelson from, uh, I think he's from Nebraska, uh, was asked by Tom Harkin to help him pass this amendment to the financial reform that would cap the fees charged uh, when people went to um, their eight, the banks, for their ATMs. And Nelson said, well, I can't help you because I, I really don't know what an ATM is. I've never used one. He said, well, I do know how to use those holograms on the products in the grocery stores. They're not holograms, Ben. They're barcodes, but that does put him in the same league with George Bush Sr., who went to his first grocery store, stood in line, and didn't know what the barcodes were. So there's a real disconnect between our legislatures and the real world. We are the real world, and it's absolutely necessary that we get real. Over the years, I've done a lot of different radio shows. Uh, really happy to be doing Radio Free Oz in its uh, mm, web manifestation. I used to do a show called Osmond's Audiola, which was based on the idea that eventually, if you listen to the show, you would hear everything ever recorded. Well, it started first with, you know, 78s and LPs, and then, you know, things you'd collect here and there, and Golly, finally it moved on to uh, CDs, and you'd be surprised at the weird rarities you find. And uh, this one on a CD I found at Senior Thrift right here in uh, Freeland, Washington. I think that you'll find this um, flash from the remote past about a 100 years ago will remind you of... Uh, the present day more than you care to imagine. This is one of America's great, great stars... George M. Cohan. Did you ever sit and ponder, sit and wonder, sit and think why we're here and what this life is all about? It's a problem that has driven many brainy men to drink. It's the weirdest thing they've tried to figure out. About a thousand different theories the scientists can show, but never yet have proved a reason why. With all we've thought and all we're taught, why all we seem to know 
Because we're born, live a while, and then we die. Life's a very funny proposition after all. Imagination, jealousy, hypocrisy, gall. Three meals a day, a whole lot to say. When you haven't got the coin, you're always in the way. Everybody's fighting as we wind our way along. Every fellow claims the other fellow's in the wrong. Hurried and worried until we're buried, there's no curtain call. Life's a very funny proposition. Oh yeah, coming to the end of another Radio Free Osmond. We cannot escape this web experience without another taste of the tang, Dave. Well, I I take you to the tang here. I'm thinking of my brothers on a moonlit night. Good, good. Garrison drums stop travel. Autumn on the frontier, sound of one wild goose. Nightfall. From now on, the dew will be white. This same moon shines where I grew up. My brothers are scattered. No way to know if they're alive. The letters we send each other never seem to arrive. And the war goes on and on. Radio Free Oz. Hey, Dave, tomorrow, guess what? What, what, what? Ben Bland, the host of Ben Bland's All Day Matinee, is going to be with us. He's one of the most famous announcers in the history of, of, of television. Yeah. Absolutely. What a treat. And he promises to be sober. So, okay. <laughs> All right, that's tomorrow. Okay. Uh, Dave Osmond, he's our co-host. I'm your host, Peter Bergman. John Cummings does our ones and zeros, puts it all together. Phil Fountain is the head of the Oz Design Group. How pretty it is up on that side. Tom Gedwillow is our webmaster. Dave Maloney, our audio engineer and audio producer. He does the mix. He fixes it right. Bill McIntyre, well, he produces the whole thing. And Scott Wilde, our social media guru, and he's doing some wonderful stuff. Catch us tomorrow or whatever you do to put Oz in your ears. <laughs> 